an obscure night, fevered with love's anxiety, oh happy plight, I went forth from my house, none seeing me, for all things quiet be. That's the first stanza of a poem written in the 1500s by a Carmelite monk by the name of John of the Cross. He didn't actually give a name to this poem, but it's been called typically by most the Dark Knight. And in this poem, he is talking about the soul's journey. He says, it's talking about the departure of the soul as to its affection from itself and from all things, dying through a true mortification to all of them and to self to arrive at a sweet and delicious life with God. John also wrote a commentary on this poem, two of them actually, one called Ascent from Mount Carmel and the other Dark Night. He described the spiritual crises that every believer goes through that occur in our journey toward true devotion to Jesus Christ. And he describes how some face these crises by growing, others, when they experience these crises, give up the faith. John's not the, the first such chronicle of the dangers of what we face as believers with regard to our faith. Psalm 73 is uh, a scripture that greatly precedes John of the Cross's work. It's written about a thousand years before Christ by a man of great spiritual prowess by the name of Asaph. Asaph was a, a Levite. He was chosen by King David to lead the worship at the tabernacle. He was a poet, we're told. He was a prophet, the scriptures say. And in Psalm 73, he describes his own spiritual crisis that he went through in which he almost lost his faith. No doubt he wrote this in order to instruct us how to face these, this crisis, just like John of the Cross wrote. And he wants to show us how to successfully navigate this crisis of faith, this journey through the dark night. So would you like to look at it with me? Psalm 73. Verse 1, he starts this way. God is indeed good to Israel, to the pure in heart. You might say this is uh, Asaph's credo. This is his kind of basic belief that forms everything about how he lives and follows in his life. Could this be your credo? God is indeed good to us, to those who are pure in heart. God is good to those who believe in him. God is good to those who have a purity of faith and love for Jesus Christ. That's what Asaph believed. But his belief came under severe attack when he saw two things. And he makes a startling discovery about two things. The first is about the wicked. Look at what he says in verse 2. This disturbed him to the core of his soul. He says, as for me, my feet almost slipped. My steps nearly went astray. 
you've surely had the experience of slipping and falling, right? When you know, you're going along normal, safe, secure, and all of a sudden your feet disappear from under you and you're laying flat. It's a terrifying experience. I could, I could tell you an embarrassing experience of my slipping in the shower. It's, it's just scary. And I'm sure you've also had the experience of almost slipping, where you're walking along and suddenly the terror is prolonged because you're, you're trying to keep your feet, you're trying to stay upright, and you manage to, but it's scary. This is what happened to Asaph. He went through this kind of terrifying experience in his faith, and he describes it in verse 3. For I envied the arrogant. I saw the prosperity of the wicked. They have an easy time until they die, and their bodies are well fed. They're not in trouble like others. They're not afflicted like most people. Therefore, pride is their necklace, and violence covers them like a garment. Their eyes bulge out from fatness. The imaginations of their hearts run wild. They mock, and they speak maliciously. They arrogantly threaten oppression. They set their mouths against heaven, and their tongues strut across the earth. Therefore, his people turn to them and drink in their overflowing words. The wicked say, how can God know? Does the Most High know everything? Look at them, the wicked. They are always at ease, and they increase their wealth. This didn't fit with Asa's credo. God is good to those who are pure in heart, but the corollary of that should be he is not good to those who are wicked of heart. And yet that's not what he was seeing. Asaph, see these wicked people who arrogantly mock belief in God and their need to obey him. And they should be experiencing the judgment of God, but instead they're prospering. They're doing great. They shouldn't be healthy, wealthy, or wise if they're not really pure in heart, if they're not believing in God, if they're not being what he says they should be. They should be experiencing judgment. So that's the first thing that brought Asa's faith under attack and caused him to almost slip. Perhaps if it was just, however, that the wicked were prospering, getting off scot-free, so to speak, from God's judgment, he might have been okay. But there was another thing that he also experienced that kind of really put the nail in his coffin. Look at verse 13. Did I purify my heart and wash my hands in innocence for nothing? For I am afflicted all day long and punished every morning. If I had decided to say these things aloud, I would have betrayed your people. So not only did he see the wicked prospering, which seemed like a contradiction of God's justice, of his credo, God is good to those who are pure in heart. But here he is, one who is pure in heart, and he's suffering. He's struggling. He's not prospering at all. 
Now, he doesn't tell us what the cause of his suffering was. It really doesn't matter, does it? He was hurting, and the wicked were happy, and that didn't make sense. Isn't that when we usually experience a crisis of faith, when we're hurting, when we're suffering? I told you last week that I'd had a gallbladder attack some months ago, and and the pain was incredibly intense. But when I asked God to take away the pain, he didn't. That's when your faith struggles the most. That's when you're suffering and you need him. And the questions come up, does God care about me? Is he really able to take care of my needs? Does he really exist? Is the Christian faith really true? I mean, your mind goes all these places. Asaph was tempted in this situation where he was experiencing doubt to share his doubts, to tell of his doubts to the people of God around him. But he didn't because he wasn't going to destroy the faith of others. He wasn't going to betray God's people. It's one thing if, you know, some down-and-out sinner talks about their doubts in Jesus Christ, their doubts of their faith. It can be challenging, but it's quite another when a spiritual giant tells you they're having spiritual doubts, like Asaph was. We might could handle if one of our fellow members here was struggling with doubts, but if Jason Stockdale tells us that what we believe is foolish, wow, that would have a greater impact, wouldn't it? So he stayed quiet. I'm a big fan of uh, several comedy duos, <laughs> Laurel and Hardy, uh, Abbott and Costello, Click and Clack, the Tappet Brothers. Anybody heard of them? The Flight of the Concords. And there's one more recent than that, a comedy duo of Rhett and Link. Rhett and Link, are you familiar with them? They started out making uh, funny commercials, real commercials for local businesses that are just hilarious. You can see these on YouTube. Uh, They're really fun to watch. But before all of that, they were with Campus Crusade for Christ Ministries, and they were the ones who were responsible for entertainment for their staff and workers' conferences. They were avid believers in Jesus Christ. But recently, they have departed from the faith. And they've spoken of their reasons for their departure from the faith on their podcast, which is called Ear Biscuits. These are influential guys. And so their unbelief has great impact on other people. I've listened to to their reasons for leaving Christianity. I found their reasons for unbelief not convincing to me, not, I felt strongly evidentiary But is it right for them to do this? Asaph didn't think it was right for him to do it. So he kept quiet. But notice something else that Asaph says here that gives us a clue that there's more than meets the eye here. There's something in his own faith that is askew, something that's not right. This is his second discovery. He's definitely unhappy with God for letting the wicked prosper and succeed, and for not prospering himself, but he exhibits a bit of his own unrighteousness 
when he asked this question in verse 13, we, we looked at it. Did I purify my heart and wash my hands in innocence for nothing? Do you catch the significance of that question? Why do you or should you do good? Is it so you'll get something from it? Is it so you'll be rewarded? Why do you purify your heart and wash your hands in innocence? Is it to get something from God? Parents, do you want your kids to do good, to obey you, only because they get an allowance? Why do we do good? Isn't doing good good in and of itself? I had a pastor uh, in my youth who loved to quip that some people got paid for being good, but he was good for nothing. Shouldn't we be good for nothing? Not for what we get, not for pay, but because being good is good. It's right. It's what we should be. Well, what Asaph is showing us here in this question, in his deep pain, is something of his true heart. God is good to those who are pure in heart. That's what he believed. That's his credo. But by good, God being good to those who are pure in heart, what he really meant was God gives a payoff to those who are pure in heart. He prospers those who believe. Asaph was, I guess you could say, a believer in the prosperity gospel before there was a prosperity gospel. This is his way, though, of signaling us there's something in him that needs correction in this dark night journey of his soul. And this is what he discovers and shares with us in the last half of this psalm. Look at Asaph's course correction. Look at verse 16. When I tried to understand all this, it seemed hopeless. Have you been there? I've been there. It's a horrible feeling. It's as if you're in an earthquake and every sure footing you had is gone. You're out of control. You can't see a weight of faith when everything you believe is called into question. It's hard. What was it, though, that prevented Asaph from actually slipping? And he tells us that in verse 17. Well, verse 16, when I tried to understand this, it seemed hopeless until, verse 17, I entered God's sanctuary. Now, this is kind of a strange statement to me because Asaph was a Levite, so he was all around the tabernacle and later the temple. Uh, the Levites were responsible for taking care of the tabernacle. They were responsible for taking care of the furniture and so forth. But the Levites weren't allowed into the sanctuary. Only their brothers, the priests, were allowed to do that. Even David talks at times as if he had access to or entered into the sanctuary. Um, he says in Psalm 30, 63, So I have looked upon you in the sanctuary, beholding your power and glory. And Psalm 150, verse 1, encourages us to praise God in his sanctuary. But we don't actually get to go into the sanctuary. Of course, there isn't one now. 
Isaiah was not a priest either, but Isaiah had a vision of God in his sanctuary. This is Isaiah 6, and this is probably getting closer to the meaning of what Asaph is talking about here. Asaph didn't literally go into God's sanctuary. That would have been forbidden. But he spiritually did so. He communed with God personally. And that's something you and I can do. And honestly, when I've struggled with my faith, this is what's helped me the most. When I've had doubts, I just talk to God about them. And it may be days and days of talking to him about them. God, I'm struggling. I just, I can't believe this. It feels not true. What it, and sometimes he has spoken directly to my heart like I think he did to Asaph. Other times he's led me to sources or resources that help quell my doubts, answer the questions I couldn't find on my own. God gave Asaph two answers to his two questions. He answered his problem about the wicked prospering. We're going to see that. And he answered his problem about the righteous suffering. So look at verse 17. When I went into the sanctuary, then I understood there the wicked's destiny. Indeed, you, God, put them, the wicked, in slippery places. You make them fall into ruin. How suddenly they become a desolation. They come to an end, swept away by terrors. Like one waking from a dream, Lord, when arising, you will despise their image. So here God is assuring Asaph that there would indeed be justice for the wicked. Only it wasn't in all cases going to be in the timely manner that Asaph would have wanted it to be. God is promising justice, but it may come after death. I mean, Asaph had seen people, wicked people, prospering up to the day of their death. But God is saying there will be justice. Their destiny, what will happen to their souls after they die is desolation and terrors. That's what he's promising. Uh, it's kind of like what we shared last week, uh, the story that Jesus, Jesus told of Lazarus and the rich man and the account of the rich man waking up in torment. Are we happy with this answer? <laughs> not, not always, because we see the suffering caused by the wicked, the suffering of the righteous that they create. We long for wickedness like that to be judged immediately, but sometimes God delays judgment until death. God only guarantees judgment at that point. He asks us to trust him. Trust him that he will bring forth justice. So God gives Asaph a, an answer to the prosperity of the wicked. They will be judged. Then he begins to hone in on Asaph to help him see that bit of wickedness that's inside him that needs correction, that wickedness that caused Asaph's problem with his own lack of understanding and lack of prospering. 
Look at what he says in verse 21, 22. When I became embittered and my innermost being was wounded, I was stupid and didn't understand. I was an unthinking animal toward you, God. God helps Asaph see that his problem was stemming from internal bitterness, from a stupidness, a a not human-like, but a animal-like, brute beast-like mentality. It was happening to him. It was real for him. This is what happened to Job also. Uh, Job, we're told by God himself, was the most righteous man on the face of the earth. He wasn't suffering because he had sinned, as his friends tried repeatedly to persuade him. He was suffering at God's hand. God had a sovereign purpose in Job's suffering. But in that process, Job ended up expressing to God that if God understood and really knew the situation, he wouldn't be bringing this suffering into Job's life. God thought, Job thought God was mistaken, that God needed to be convinced that Job wasn't a sinner, that he had made a mistake. So Job basically justified himself above God. He thought he knew better than God. And this is what Job had to learn to despise in himself. He talks about that in the end of the the book. This is what Asaph had to learn about himself. This is what you and I need to learn about ourselves. Because aren't we the same way? When we see a system of injustice, we think, if I were God, here's what I would do. Here's how I would cause things to happen. Here's the justice, the swift change I would bring about. I would make things right. And we especially see that when we're the ones who are hurting. God, this makes sense, doesn't it, to take care of me? We know better than God how things should go. Now, we wouldn't say it that way, but that's exactly what's going on inside our heads. God helps Asaph see something he hadn't seen before, this brutish arrogance that thinks he knows better than God. And so look what he says he discovered in verse 23. Yet I, Asaph, am always with you, God. You hold my right hand. You guide me with your counsel. And afterward, you will take me up in glory. Despite all this brutish, embittered feelings that Asaph had, God hadn't given up on him. God hadn't left Asaph to the winds of suffering all by himself. He, he hadn't abandoned him. He hadn't, just like he hadn't abandoned Job, he hadn't abandoned Asaph. Asaph had always been with God. God had always been holding his right hand. Asaph was safe in God's care, even when, maybe especially when Asaph was suffering. God was doing something in Asaph. This is what he needed to see. He was using this dark night to grow Asaph in his devotion to God. 
God was doing something like that in Job's life. God's doing something like that in your and my life as well. So this led Asaph to a powerful conclusion. Look at verse 25. Who do I have in heaven but you? And I desire nothing on earth but you, God. This is the key statement to this whole psalm. Asaph looked for prosperity from God because of his pure heart, because he was pleasing God. He had failed to realize that God was his prosperity. Your prosperity as a Christian is not to be found in your material possessions, in your relationships, anything. It's in knowing God. If you're worrying, obeying God to get reward in life, you're not truly worshiping him. Knowing him is the ultimate prosperity, is the ultimate reward. What corrected Asaph's false ideas about the prosperity of believers and the judgment of unbelievers was an understanding that God had given him that judgment is sure for unbelievers and that the prosperity of believers is knowing their God. I was sure when I graduated seminary that God was going to give me a great church position somewhere where I could use all this stuff that he had given me. And yet day after day, no church position was afforded me. Nobody wanted me. I told myself that the reason was probably because I wasn't faithful enough in my devotions as I needed to be. I wasn't pure in heart enough for God to be good to me. I ended up having to get a job as a substitute teacher in the Shelby County Schools, and let me tell you, I hardly got any calls. And I mean, our finances were getting pretty bad. I ended up getting a permanent teaching position at a private Christian academy, and that helped but the pay was abysmal. Then I got a job at my home church. <laughs> Pastor called one day and asked if I'd like to come on, but the position he was offering me was to run their printing press. Let me give you a clue. I didn't learn anything about that in seminary. But God was using all this experience to complete my training, and it was, it was good training. I had to learn that I have no one in heaven besides him. And I think I'm still learning that there's nothing on earth I desire besides him. So finally, I was able to say with what Asaph says in verses 26 to 28, look at it. My flesh and my heart may fail. I may not prosper. But God is the strength of my heart my portion forever. Those far from you, God, will certainly perish. You destroy all who are unfaithful to you. But as for me, God's presence is my good. I have made the Lord Yahweh my refuge so I can tell about all you do. You know, the Levites 
were told that they would not get a portion of land in Israel for their own like the other tribes got. Instead, Yahweh told them, I will be your portion. I will take care of you. I will provide for you. And now Asaph is declaring he's, he's learned that. He's, he's realized that truth. And now he wants to tell all about God and what he does. How God's presence in our lives is our ultimate good. And despite the suffering that we might have to endure, God is a refuge in and through it all. Have you learned that? Can you sing with, with John Newton? Through many dangers, toils, and snares, I have already come. Tis grace that brought me safe this far, and grace will lead me home. That's the dark journey of the soul towards devotion to Christ that every believer must take. We must learn that our true prosperity is in Christ alone. Not in what he gives us, not in the things that he provides, but just being able to be with him. In an obscure night, fevered by love's anxiety, oh, hapless, happy plight, I went, none seeing me, forth from my house where all things quiet be. That journey of the dark night of our soul. Let's make that journey with love's anxiety pushing us forth from our houses to true worship of God. Lord Jesus, use these dark nights in the journey of our souls to lead us into increasing devotion to you. Teach us, just like you did Asaph and Job and John Newton and so many others of your saints, that you alone are our prosperity. That even if we never experience wealth or perfect health, you are our portion forever. You are our refuge. You are indeed good to those who are pure in heart. Help us not to measure our relationship to you by our prosperity, Lord Jesus, and certainly not to measure it by the prosperity of the wicked. They will perish, but you will take us up in glory. That is your promise. And even as their final judgment is at death, so our ultimate reward is also at death, Lord. Lead us into your sanctuary so that we can learn from you what it means to find answers to the questions we have hopelessly failed to answer on our own. Open our hearts to hear what you teach us. In Jesus' name, amen. Hey, thanks for listening to the Grace Hill Podcast. We really hope you found this message compelling and inviting. If you'd like to connect with someone to find out more about Grace Hill Church, or maybe discuss this episode or something else about life or faith, please don't hesitate to reach out to us directly at gracehill901.com. We'd really love to connect and discuss anything with you. And please remember, you matter.